God, you are good, and we pray this morning that you would open our eyes to see you this morning. Would you open our ears to hear your words, and would you open our hearts to receive what you have for us, and would you form and shape us into your image by the power of your spirit for your glory, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Growing up, did anyone like urban legends? Or, or maybe you still do, right? We got Bigfoot and Yeti and the, the Loch Ness Monster. And I think that one might be real, real because big water, bodies of water are frightening sometimes. Anyone else? Or I remember growing up, my dad always used to tell me that a troll lived under a bridge uh, near our house. And still to this day when I go home, I drive slowly under that bridge just in case that I see it. Um, or how about this? Did anyone grow up thinking that the pool changed different colors if you went to the bathroom in it? Yeah? Just so you know, it doesn't do that. And when I found that out as a six-year-old, it was the most relieving and freeing thing I'd ever learned to that point. Right? There are all kinds of urban legends. And, and I wonder if often... Us as Christians and the church as a whole, I wonder if our understanding and experience of the Holy Spirit is kind of like an urban legend. We, we have heard of Bigfoot, and maybe some of us in this room even believe in Bigfoot, but we've never seen Bigfoot or gotten to know Bigfoot or experienced Bigfoot. Anyone relate to that? Does anyone in the room believe in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit? And I'm glad that you do, because I do as well. But have you ever gotten to know the Holy Spirit? Have you ever experienced the Holy Spirit? And maybe you're in this room and you're not even sure what the Holy Spirit is or what he does. And part of the reason for this makes complete sense. Several authors have, have put this dilemma uh, with this line. They, they've said this, the specific difficulty with the Holy Spirit is that it has no face. And if you think about the triune God, Jesus, the Son, he is a human figure and a human face. He's God in human flesh. We can picture that. And then maybe a little more difficult, we have God the Father. You know, in the Old Testament, it talks about anyone who sees God face dies. And then in the Gospel of John, it's talked about how Jesus is the only one to see the face of the Father. But regardless, we understand this idea of Father relationally. He's God in heaven, in heaven parenting, guiding, loving us, his children on earth. But the Holy Spirit that often conveys something near yet far, something immaterial and even impersonal compared to the Father and the Son. And so the question that we need to ask is what, or better, who is the Holy Spirit? Christianity Today, a number of years ago, tried to get at this question, they, they made this statement. They said, the Holy Spirit is a force, not a person. 
And then they asked American evangelicals this, and they had to either agree, disagree, or say they don't know. The Holy Spirit is a force, not a person. 51% agreed, and 7% said they don't know. So that means over half of all American evangelicals believe the Holy Spirit is a force, not a person. But the truth is, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. A person to know. A person to be in relationship with. A person to experience. One pastor that I listen to puts it like this. He says, the Holy Spirit is not a power to wield, but a person to know. And that is the deep hope this morning and of this entire series, is that we get to know the person of the Holy Spirit. The goal of this series is not to just understand the doctrine better, although I hope we do. The hope of this series is not to tap into the power or use the power of the Holy Spirit, but I hope that happens. But the deep hope of this series is to get to know and experience the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And just so we're all on the same page, this morning and throughout this uh, series, I'm going to use the word experience quite a bit. And it's intentional and it's personal. We just sang it in our first song this morning. And there's a reason for that. Edward Schweizer said this, Long before the Holy Spirit became an article of the creed, he was a living reality in the experience of the primitive church. Dort, true Christianity engages and invokes a response from our heart, from our mind, from our soul, and from our strength. We experience it in our whole being. Now how each of us experience it will look a bit different. Because we're all unique image bearers and created. We are unique people created in the image of God. It doesn't always look the same. Going a little further, Simon Ponzombi in his book More says this. We must challenge any attempts to exercise experience from Christianity. Reducing it to something fiduciary. When this occurs, we become the flip side of liberalism. Post-enlightenment rationalists who define our foundation as merely intellectual beings. And if these quotes don't convince you, maybe Jesus will. Jesus says in John 17 verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To my knowledge, this is the only place in all of Scripture that Jesus himself defines eternal life. And he says that eternal life is to know God. And this Greek word is gnosko. And primarily this is not an intellectual knowledge, but an experiential knowledge. So what is eternal life? It's experientially knowing God here and now. And that's the hope of this series. To know and to experience the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, 
God himself right here and right now, not just in the future, but here. So to begin this, let's, we're going to go back to Genesis 2. If you have your Bibles, you can open there. If not, it'll be on the screen. And I'm going to read for us Genesis 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Aaron read and started here last week, and, and he said these words. He said, the Holy Spirit animates our existence. And we see this, if we go to Genesis 1, God, life began when God spoke a word. And when we speak, we breathe. So God spoke in trees and plants and animals, and, and everything was given life. And then God breathed into mankind. And they and we were given life. The primary Hebrew word used for breath is ruach. And throughout the Old Testament, this, can, this word means breath, wind, or spirit. And so at the beginning of creation, God is not simply breathing life into humanity, but he is breathing his spirit into humanity. Etienne Vito writes, the Holy Spirit is the burning, passionate breath of the Father and the Son. And scripture is full of this understanding as well. Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath, by the ruach of his mouth all their host. Job 33, the spirit, the ruach of God has made me, the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Ezekiel 37, thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath, I will cause ruach to enter you, and you shall live. So here's the point. The Holy Spirit is not distant. The Holy Spirit is not impersonal or a force, but a life-giving breath in you and in me. And the purpose of God's divine breath is to extend God's presence in all of creation. And so, yes, God's presence is in all of creation, but humanity, me and you, we are distinct. We are set, ap set apart in a special and profound way. So let's continue the creation story to see that. We're going we're gonna to skip to the first part of verse 18, Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Many of us in this room, we've read that. We've heard that passage before, and, and if you're anything like me, what comes to mind rather naturally is that we get a picture of this physical rib coming out of Adam to form Eve. And most scholars and most Christians, we wouldn't disagree with that image. However, this understanding has given rise to some interesting views um, throughout history, I, I actually vividly remember when I was in elementary school, I don't, maybe, I don't know, second or third grade, I was in elementary school, and a teacher told me 
that men had one less rib than women, which is proof of the creation story. And I had to Google it just to make sure that still wasn't true because it's so ingrained in me. And if you're wondering, we each have 12 sets of ribs, 24 each, primarily. So we have the same amount of ribs. Or, or maybe you've been to a Christian wedding before and you heard some kind of romantic or sentimental statement that goes something like this. The source of woman, Adam's rib, is indicative of her position with man close to his heart. Oh, there should be ahs and oohs. Like, it's, rom- it's sweet. We get it. We understand this. And it even seems maybe our English Bible translations argue for this understanding as well. I mean, look at Adam's word. After Eve is formed from his rib, look at this romantic statement. Could you imagine saying this to your wife or to your girlfriend um, right when you see her? This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Use that pickup line this week. It'll work. It's biblical. And I want to be clear, this idea of physical closeness and connection makes sense and is true in part. But what God and the author of Genesis are conveying in the creation story is a much more profound and life-changing truth and reality. Because this word rib in Genesis chapter 2 is the Hebrew word selah. And it, and, it, and it means side. And so what we can do, we can take Genesis 2 and we can insert, instead of saying rib, we can say side. He took one of man's sides, then God fashioned a woman from the side. And you might be thinking, okay, side, rib, what's, what's really the difference? That conveys the same thing. But there's a big one. This word selah or side is used around 40 times in the Old Testament. One time it's used to refer to the side of a hill. Another time in our text this morning, the only time it's translated rib is in Genesis chapter 2. But all the other times it's used, it is used as an architectural term referring to the side of a structure. And it's the main piece of architecture that holds the whole structure together. But get this, listen to this. It's not just any structure. The word selah, the word side, is, is used almost every time to refer to the tabernacle or the temple in Jerusalem. We see in Exodus, it talks about the side of the tabernacle. In 1 Kings 6, it talks about the side of the temple. Ezekiel, in his vision, uses this same word um, to talk about the side of the future temple. Over and over, this word gets used in reference to the tabernacle and the temple. And the purpose of these sides was not just to keep the structure up and together, the purpose of the sides were to, were to house what was inside. And what was inside the tabernacle and the temple? God's presence. When both the tabernacle in Exodus 40 and the temple in 1 Kings 8 were built, here's what scripture tells us. The cloud covered the structure And the glory of the Lord filled them. Translation, God's presence was among his people. 
Michael Green, in his book on the Holy Spirit, writes this. In Old Testament days, the presence of God was normally experienced in Israel through the tabernacle in the wilderness and later the temple in Jerusalem. The tabernacle and temple was marked by God's glorious presence. And Moses in Exodus chapter 33 gets at this when he, he says this to God. He says, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all other people on the face of the earth? It was the presence of God that marked out Israel as special, as distinct. And at this point, you may be asking, okay, well, what does this have to do with Genesis 2? What, is, what does this understanding have to do with the Holy Spirit, with you and with me? And here's the truth. The tabernacle and the temple were not the original intention to house God's presence. You were. I was. All humanity in Genesis 2, God breathes his ruach, his Holy Spirit, into mankind, and they became a living being. And then God opened man's side and formed woman from it. But its purpose was not simply to create a human body. Its purpose was to create a human home to house God's presence. We were created to be a dwelling place for God. When God created humankind, he was building himself a home. And this idea is radical. Because when the book of Genesis was written down, the gods of the day, they were impersonal. They were distant. They were gods of the stars and the sun. It was the fertility god and the god of the moon. They were something other. They were something out there. But the god of the Hebrews... The God of the creator of the universe, my God, your God, he is personal. He is relational. He is near. And from the foundations of the world, God has been personal. Man and woman, you and me are God's home. And so what I hope you see is, is that this is not just a New Testament reality that we get when Jesus comes. But it's an always and forever truth and reality from the beginning. It's built into the creational structure of what is. And yes, sin breaks it in the next chapter. But all of redemptive history is renewing this truth again. So students and staff and faculty, you are God's home. The home of his Holy Spirit. The home of his relational presence, as you'll hear Dr. Jeremy Perigo say. God has always been near. God has always been personal through his spirit in you, and that spirit is what sets you apart as distinct. That spirit 
is what makes you the crown jewel of all creation. That spirit is your identity. That spirit is who you are. And so our deepest hope this semester is that you experience that to be true. That you would experience communion and intimacy with the Father through getting to know his Holy Spirit in you. So my plea, campus ministry's plea is this. Lean into this series. Be willing to go deeper still in communion with God. And let's not be a community that only intellectually believes in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But let's be a community that relationally and experientially knows the Holy Spirit. And I realize something. For some of us in this room, all this talk about God and experience and the Holy Spirit is, is jarring and maybe even a bit triggering for you. Because maybe your experience of God has been cold and impersonal and rigid, and that is nothing that you want to experience. Or maybe you've experienced some kind of spiritual abuse by someone misusing the Holy Spirit and treating it as a power to wield rather than inviting you to know the Holy Spirit as a person to be in relationship with. Or maybe it's just simply not part of your church tradition. It's probably many of us in here. We like Theology, we like intellect, we like the word, which I love all those things too. Majored in theology at Dort years ago. And if this is you, which is probably all of us on some degree, here's my encouragement. Be honest with God where you're at. Share your questions. Share your doubts and your concerns. Because I know there are a lot But again, here is the ask. Are you willing to go deeper still? Are you willing? Are you willing to be surprised? Are you willing to let the walls come down? Are you willing to experience something that you may or may not be able to explain? Are you willing to repent of something that no one knows? Are you willing to be honest and open and vulnerable and weak? Are you willing to relinquish control? Are you willing to go deeper still? Think about that for a moment. Are you willing to let go of some of those things? And if so, I want to invite you as we close into, yeah, spiritual rhythm or practice or discipline, whatever language your tradition gives it this week. I want to invite you to spend time with God. I want to invite you to commune with God. Maybe you call it quiet time or devotions. Because what is revealed in Genesis 2 is that God wants to be close to you. So close, in fact, that he breathed his spirit in you and created you to be his home. And if I can be so bold, one of the main purposes of the Holy Spirit is to reveal the great lengths God went to be close to his kids. 
to you, to me. And if this is true, let's spend time with that God. So this week, choose a time, choose a place, choose a way to commune with God. I sent an email out this morning and it had some discussion questions, but also attached to it was a document just to give you suggestions and a way to commune with God through a devotional reading of Scripture. It gives you some steps and it gives you some options. I invite you to use that if it's helpful. But here's the key. As you spend time with God, as you commune with Him, in whatever place and in whatever way, here's the key. Show up, be yourself, and let God love you. Because it's okay if you get distracted. And it's okay if you daydream. It's okay if you don't learn a thing. And it's okay if you get interrupted. I have a five-year-old son, Zion, and at times he comes and he sits on my lap. And there's times where he wants me, he wants me to read to him. He, he tells me stories and talks about school. There are times where he just says nothing and wants to rest. Other times he tickles me because he thinks that's funny. And I have to pretend that I'm ticklish. And there's times that I want to talk to him. There's times where I want to share something with him and ask him questions. But honestly, he just doesn't care and he's totally distracted. But if I'm honest with myself, I don't care at all. Because I am overjoyed that my son is spending time with me. That he would just choose to come sit on my lap and be with me. And that is the way God the Father feels about you. His sons and his daughters. More than anything else, he's delighted that you would choose to spend time with him. That you would be with him. And know that he delights in you. And he is pursuing you. And that is the God that we want to know and go deeper still with this semester.